I V M. Open the international section of any newspaper these days, and you will see something on the ongoing U.S.-China trade war. What is a trade war, or is it a trade battle, or a skirmish, or are the war metaphors entirely wrong in this field? Anupam Manohar and Manoj persuade us that actually this is an ongoing U.S.-China battle of tariffs. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on economics, public policy, and international relations. I am your host, Pavan Shrinath. Joining me today are my colleagues and frequent guests, Manoj Keval Ramani and Anupam Manur. Manoj Keval Ramani is an associate fellow for China studies at the Takshashila Institution. Before joining us, Manoj spent several years working in China in journalism, in manufacturing, and more. Now he writes a weekly column on thinkpragati.com called Eye on China and his recent research includes a detailed examination of Chinese plans to become a leader in artificial intelligence. Anupam Manur is an assistant professor at the Takshashila Institution who teaches and researches on economic issues. He's a macroeconomist by training and his most recent research is on how tech platforms like Amazon, Facebook and Google could be governed in India. This episode is the first of a two-episode special on the ongoing economic conflict between the United States and China. No spoilers here, but check out part two, episode 78, to understand what the real war between US and China is about. We'll be back with Manoj and Anupam to talk about the ongoing US-China battle of tariffs after this short break. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IBM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure that you do. We're IBM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So this week on Instagram, we asked everybody to tell us about their New Year's resolutions, and we had some really interesting interactions with our audience on based on that. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, do check us out. On The Scene and the Unseen, Amit Verma talks to Congress MP Shashi Tharoor about his new book, The Paradoxical Prime Minister. They chat about holding politicians to their promises, the paradoxes of Indian politics at large, and what the 2019 elections might have in store. On Cyrus Says, Cyrus is joined by the habit coach Ashton Doctor, who talks about the importance of healthy habits, simple tricks to meditate, and his new podcast, The Habit Coach. Speaking of The Habit Coach, in a three-part series, Ashton shares his golden secrets to achieving New Year resolutions. On the Prakati podcast, Pawan is joined by Dr. Jay Prakash Narayan. They discuss India's success and failures as a republic and a democracy. On Talle Harate, legal expert Alok Prasanna Kumar discusses the Supreme Court judgment on Aadhaar and its implication on citizens. On Geek Fruit, Tejas, Jishnu and Dinkar do a recap of their favorite films from 2018. And on IVM Likes, Janan Surbhi and Abbas give out some cool pop culture recommendations and discuss the new Netflix horror movie Bird Box, starring Sandra Bullock. And with that, let's get you back to your show. Hi Manoj, hi Anupam. Welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. Hi Pavan, thanks so much. Glad to be back. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's good to have you both on the show today. So, a um, an economist, a journalist, and a China watcher and an analyst all together. And uh, the reason we are doing this because is we want to talk about what is happening with the global trade war, or more specifically, the U.S.-China trade war. So, my first question to start all this off is. Is this a trade war that we are seeing? What is What the hell is going on? Um, I think the only sort of correct word in that sort of framing is trade. It's neither global, it's nor a war. It's a symptom of something deeper that's taking place. But trade is just a peripheral component of this. That's how I would frame it. All right. If each time one country levied tariffs on other, 
and we started dubbing that as a trade war, uh, we would perpetually be in a state of trade war. So that's clearly not what the bigger concern is. Uh, US has imposed some kind of tariffs on Chinese products. China has retaliated. Europe has gotten into the mix. Sure. But this is not a new phenomena. This is not really confined to the US. This is not something that happened post-Trump. Things have been even more visible now than before. But that by itself is not the headline story. So then the correct way to think about this is that it is a US-China tariff battle. So it's not a trade war, but it's a tariff battle. Uh, It's on specific goods. Services have not even been this thing because trade would mean all kinds of goods and services. So it's not. So it's a tariff battle on certain goods. All right. So we we can keep hedging that down, but let's, I want to roll with this, right? So there's a US-China tariff battle going on. All right. Now let's take 10 steps back. And please tell me first, trade is a good thing, right? So when you put a trade tariff, are you doing, are you hurting the enemy? Can you give me like 101 of this right now? You are obviously doing it in a sense with a purpose to hurt the enemy. But more often than not, what you do is you end up hurting yourselves, which means that you end up hurting your own consumers. So we've been on this road many a times in economic history. In fact, just after the Great Depression in the US, you had the US put on tariffs on multiple goods which were coming from Europe at that point of time. There's a fantastic Planet Money episode on the same topic as well. Yes, yeah. And uh, well, yeah, I've written about it as well. Um, (laughs) Yes, Anupam, you have. (laughs) The interesting thing is uh, there were quite a few economists who said, listen, this is not right. You're going to hurt US consumers more than you're going to hurt Europe. And uh, the entire kind of world will get sucked into this and it'll end up hurting everybody. So no one wins at the end of it. But take me a few steps back here. Why is trade a good thing? Trade is a win-win scenario. Whenever people create something of value, they exchange it. Don't think of trade purely in international terms. Imagine why any of us do any of the economic activities that we are involved in. Why would I give 15 rupees and buy a bar of chocolate? Uh, It's because that person, I value that bar of chocolate at 15 rupees. Someone is able to produce it at less than 15 rupees and thus can sell it to me at 15, make a profit. He's happy because he's making a profit. I'm happy because I get that bar of chocolate at the price that I value it at. So, And hopefully that chocolate brings you some short-term joy and not too much long-term suffering. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So everyone's happy. So voluntary trade, is, trade a is a good thing. right? And trade has helped the world grow as well. Massively. I mean, there's thousands of studies which have been done on this, which says that trade has such a huge positive impact on economic growth. Uh, in fact, Countries which were completely autarkic in nature, countries which are completely closed, they opened up to trade and suddenly you have massive amounts of growth that comes in. Uh, so that is why trade is good. Now, not everyone sees it that way, of course. I think uh, this is a good point of time, given that we've just had the celebration for the 40th anniversary of reform and opening up in China. Um, and given China in the 1970s, given China today, 40 years later, um, and the amount of export-driven growth that that country has witnessed, the fact that it's now gone on after 40 years to set up a import-export, say we're going to be the hub for global imports, 
um, just gives you a sense of how a communist regime is in favor of global trade. So you can see the value of trade just by that and just by the changing numbers within China itself. So if communist China can bat for trade, must be something to it. <laughs> Has to be something to it. So what happens when it's international trade? So we've, I think, spent some time separately talking about domestic trade, right? So whenever you go to a mandi and buy something, you're indulging in economic activity, which is also trade. But international trade takes on new characteristics, right? And is considered something very, very special and handled very differently. So do you tell me a little about international trade and then we'll get to what happens with these tariffs and more? That's actually quite unfortunate because trade is trade, whether it's domestic or international. The principles of trade do not change. People have comparative advantages. That is something that they're good at doing. They specialize in that, do it and sell it. And as I said, you know, make profit, gain value. That principle does not change whether it's between two people in the same street or whether it's one person sitting in Antigua and the other person in Papua New Guinea. Uh, that really doesn't change much at all. But unfortunately, I think the perspective that comes in when you talk about international trade is this us versus them. Somehow people are happy understanding that uh, in a simple trade between, let's say, that's what me and this guy, vendor who's selling chocolate, uh, people are happy understanding that both gain from it. Whereas somehow when you look at international trade, you tend to think that it's a win-lose scenario, that someone gains at someone else's expense. So suddenly countries go on to this thing saying, if I'm importing too much from the US, then we are losing out and US is gaining. So that is where I think things get really muddy, though it should not. The principles of trade do not change at all. And this does not change whether uh, it is goods or services or even capital right absolutely or labor or labor yeah but that's slightly down the road we'll get into that later so so what we are essentially then talking about is the movement of goods be it a can of tuna uh, a shrimp uh, or uh, we're talking about a car we're talking about parts of a car whatever to services like software and more all the way to movement of people and movement of money right Yes. So right now, Anupam, you started by saying that, no, this is not a trade war. This is a tariff battle. And you also qualified as a, as a tariff battle on goods. So what's happening with the goods trade? What, uh, I mean, even before the battle, goods trade has always been challenging and problematic, right? I mean, uh, India has... Uh, I mean, we are all supposedly members of the World Trade Organization. I still quite don't know what that means. Uh, but but what's up with goods trade? And how have people typically dealt with goods trade? Okay, so I'm probably not going to get into how people typically dealt with the goods trade. But I can tell you what's happening right now between the US and China and why we are in this current scenario where we are at. Um, so the scenario uh, that Anupam described of trade uh, and free trade and specialization and comparative advantages and all those hold true. Um, the sticking point that's emerged, and that's probably been one point of discussion for decades and decades when we've had these trade negotiations and with different countries, has been about what constitutes fair trade, you know, what constitutes level of development, what constitutes status of market and all those sorts of things. And what Trump has essentially picked up on is the sentiment of fairness. Now, where does the sentiment come from? Uh, that's where I'll probably get to some bit to answering the question of what's happening with the goods trade. Um, 
changes uh, in the american economy changes in the chinese economy where china went from being goes from being the world's manufacturing hub where it's manufacturing clothes shoes blankets everything else under the sun to now sort of looking at upgrading its manufacturing to different products and in that process while it's manufacturing all these other goods which are the lower end manufactured goods um jobs in america are changing industry is changing and those sorts of changes are now sort of impacting this relationship because there's a there's job losses in america there's a changing structure of the economy while people get trained to do different jobs while you create new and new sort of areas of work um, the chinese are also now entering that game uh where you're sort of looking to go up the supply chain looking to go up the sort of industrial chain and that's where the sort of competition starts to crystallize where these changes begin to happen simultaneously in both countries and then the pressure sort of builds um the here i mean if i might add the historical context of this is post world war 2 america and the united states had a big manufacturing boom right so we're talking about ford and the development of detroit and the car companies about americans making cars and um, maybe some of this was war surplus right for for going to war they built a lot of industry and then that industry and that workforce had to do other things so the american economy was booming and so they took center stage in a lot of things right so a lot of really cool stuff and really important stuff from cars to other things were being made in america and then sold out and so whatever we seeing even with china coming up now the older dialogue was oh japan is coming and uh, south korea you had japan uh, right yeah. so there was a um, or oh, the world will be a us japan order because uh, i mean toyota was sort of the symbol of taking on detroit and therefore taking on american power so in that sense that comes back to your point even about winning and losing in this trade game and sort of who's victorious right look toyota is selling cars in the us i don't think ford was selling many cars in japan back in the day um and eventually i mean post 2008 we even had a collapse of the entire detroit car industry and then other things have happened so there is so we talking about free trade we were talking about fa- some form of fairness in that trade and this idea of power and victory when uh, linked to trade in some way so let me kind of tie these two or three threads together um as you said this is not the first time that us manufacturing has been uh, kind of challenged this is not the first time that us has had worries about uh, domestic job losses about companies in the us shutting down and so on this is not definitely not the first time that's happened as you said there was japan then there was south korea then there was cheap manufacturing from uh, other kind of developing countries from china even of course europe was always kind of a contender there so this has been going on and you've had this kind of tariff battles going uh, which has happened before as well nothing new there battle or yeah, skirmish uh, probably skirmish okay. uh, sometimes so, it has gotten serious enough so i want to get to the texture of that skirmish a little later right no, but but go on yeah so um that has happened before and uh, so now let's look at free and fair trade um free there's really not much of a difference between the two free trade is supposed to be fair trade and trade is fair when it is free i know this seems confusing but all i mean by that is if you have a country which truly practices free trade then you will not have allegations leveled against it for practicing unfair trade so um what the us has done now and again historically speaking against china 
is that it accuses china of not being free enough which means that china essentially wants to keep exporting but it does funny stuff within the boundaries which is give subsidies it has massive state backed enterprises which produces certain things so it's not really level playing field it has export subsidies it has cheaper access to credit for companies that export and so on now america takes obviously some kind of you know uh, exception exception to this right uh, saying that then it's not free trade so we can actually put tariffs to negate all the dirty things that you do within your own boundaries okay so the extra international dimension you're saying is that states can play unfair games yeah so the idea is if you have free trade that means that uh, let's say a car manufacturer in the us and a car manufacturer in japan is on the same playing field it's only about their technology and their ability and their know-how and their talent to make cars better cheaper safer etc etc and if they can compete freely in the market and people can buy whichever car they want yes right yes and uh, so in international trade in general and we'll get to the specifics of china and us one of the allegations and we discussed this briefly i think in the shrimp episode as well is that there can be allegations that the playing field is not level level yeah so there is no fairness so if we look at this very broad fairness term there can be fairness between the buyer and the seller hmm. and there can be fairness across buyers yeah or across sellers yeah right so across sellers specifically so how do countries play this game in the international arena so supposing china or Rwanda I don't care uh, gives an unfair advantage to some domestic producer how does that get managed in international trade so that's what uh, there are multiple levels at which this uh, unfair practices come into trade at one level it is about giving subsidies to your own producers so what happens essentially is if Rwanda gives a subsidy to chocolate manufacturers and then that gets exported the price is obviously going to be lower in the international market then it's true price right it's not re- actually reflecting the cost so now the us let's say a company in the us which is manufacturing chocolates will not get this from the us government and thus it loses out on the export market so that immediately leads to allegations of this unfair trade practice so subsidies is one aspect of it and you can look at india and the eu on agricultural subsidies and we've been fighting about this forever so the allegation being that we subsidize our agricultural farmers yeah and europe subsidizes its uh, dairy yeah. producers and the two shall never meet yes <laughs> okay so the way to fight a subsidy would be to you put a tariff or yeah. you put something so, else just as an example right if if the brazilian government is giving 5 reals per unit of coffee as a subsidy then india would just put 5 reals worth of tariff on that product then it just leveling the playing field so this is a tariff or is there any word for this i mean no it you can call it in any other way but we'll get to those specifics later because um initially it was called tariff and it is actually that but then since tariffs got kind of frowned upon in the international arena with the wto membership and so on you can call it uh, import duty then you can call it countervailing duties you can then finally call it anti dumping duties so there's multiple things but essentially it amounts to the same thing you're basically leveling the playing field and even the tariff is a very fancy word for a tax on that specific tax import. on import tax on import all right <laughs> you can also tax export right yes or you can give a break tax break to export so that's the other one you can either give a subsidy at the manufacturing process at or at that stage 
or you can give a subsidy when you're actually exporting it. So let's say you have one level at which you tax exports. Normally, countries don't like to tax exports. You can give it much lower, you know, uh, tax for certain preferred goods. Or better still, you actually give a subsidy for those who export, which is what mostly countries do. All right. So, so this is sort of tax, international trade, goods trade 101. Yeah. Now what's happening between China and the US? Well, what's happening between China and the US? I mean, Anupam has sort of framed this already, is that with sort of changing structures of the economies in both these countries, there has been a growing sort of sense of resentment in the US over the years with regard to, and I think this is partly to do with also the political nature of this trade where there was this conversation when China entered the World Trade Organization more than a decade and a half ago that this notion that China is a developing country, eventually it develops and sort of it eases, it liberalizes, it opens its market, it gives greater access to foreign capital, it gives greater access to um, foreign goods, it allows a level playing field. That's not really happened. And that started to sort of bite, uh, given the sort of slowdown that the US went into post the 2008 financial crisis. And as the sentiment sort of brews, you have this Trump phenomenon where he picks up on this and he starts to talk about China being a currency manipulator and therefore sort of uh, taking advantage of us on exports. Uh, currency manipulator being they're underpricing the yuan and the exchange rates. Absolutely. Doing funny things. There. Absolutely. And, okay. um, and also uh, it's sort of stealing our jobs because they are subsidizing their factories, they're subsidizing their companies and we need to bring all this back. And also... The trade imbalance is so high. It's about $350 billion. Uh, We're taking so much from China and we need to impose tariffs on them because they need to give us greater market access and all of that. Um, And based on that, Trump comes in framing this idea of fairness and fairness on two counts. One is on market access uh, for American products capital and second is uh, for um, subsidies that the Chinese government is giving uh, to its companies, whether it be state-owned companies or private companies. Uh, The argument is that China, the government is subsidizing a lot of this. Um, and he wants some of that to be fundamentally changed. Uh, linked to this is also a number of other arguments with regard to technology transfer, intellectual property rights, and all those sorts of things. But it sort of crystallizes initially with this idea of trade, with the imbalance in trade, the trade deficit being the big figure that Trump keeps talking about. And that leads us to a year and a half of conversation ever since Trump assumes office until the first set of Tariffs are imposed uh, in the middle of this year in June. I think uh, fifty billion on imports worth fifty billion dollars from China, and that's sort of a message. So Trump imposes ten percent tariffs on imports worth fifty billion, uh, and that's a message that I'm serious about this. I'm going to take it to its logical conclusion, and I have the leverage on you given the amount that I import from you, um, and that's where we see this beginning. And this has a certain amount of popular appeal uh, in the US. So that's where we begin this tariff battle, so to say. So even actually before this kind of specific targeted tariffs on China, what the US positioned itself is, again, how Trump positioned himself is that he's there to right historical wrongs, that uh, the US has been at the receiving end of all sorts of unfair practices from all over the world, and he's there to correct it. Be the savior of sorts. So this is not just free trade, fair trade and all of that, but this is trade justice. Trade justice, if you please. All right. So he started with actually tariffs on steel. And this was not specific to China. 
but it was the world over right so that was the first message that came out of the us the new administration about trade right so they put a 10% extra tariff on steel imported from anywhere in the world did that a bulk of that steel happened to come from china okay. but they were still not happened. satisfied with that okay so then they put a special tariff on chinese steel over and above what is there applicable to the rest of the world uh, china i think uh, canada and one more country but mainly targeted at china so that was the first thing and then it drew up this entire list of goods which said that okay these are the goods that are imported from china which will have a special tariff what kind of goods are we talking about so a lot of these in the initial round was sort of so china ex- exports to the us a very limited set of goods um the total is around uh, you know about like i said about 400 300 billion odd worth of goods um there's a range of these uh, so there's farm products there's other goods um, so there's a range of these but he keeps out some of the sort of important things so like iPhones don't get charged some of those things are kept out um some of the things that impact sort of steel sort of the large scale things those sorts of aluminum those sorts of things get tagged um and that's sort of your initial round and as you go further this is a massive list of chemicals as all sorts of things in that of goods that he's picked up on and initially the idea is to essentially send a message that we are serious with regard to this and that's where he begins on this thing the only other thing that i would sort of add to this uh, conversation is that apart from just looking at it from the point of view of this the trump administration coming and talking about uh, sort of economic justice and trade justice it's a lot also to do with a sense of america being taken for a ride and that's sort of an anxiety that's reflected with regard to relative american decline and the conversation around that and also the sort of implications of that post the 2008 crisis and this is a reflection somewhere of that where there is greater competition truly the unipolar moment has sort of passed and this is in some ways a reaction to that we'll be back with anupam and manoj after this short break Hello everybody we have a brand new daily podcast we're working on with Bloomberg Quint. All you need to know provides the top news on business markets and the economy so that you can stay ahead of the curve. Tune in every morning on bloombergquint.com the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcast from. Welcome back. Along with that there's also a very domestic political and economic a challenge or even rot that we can talk about in the US right which may be fueling trump himself as a phenomenon and whatever he bubbled into um where basically middle class american wages have not improved in the last what 30 40 50 yeah. years now uh, there's not been any real wage increase real wages have not increased uh productivity gains are not visible at all in fact a uh, total factor productivity in the us has stagnated or even declined in the last few years uh, has been stagnating for quite some time so and this, since the total factor productivity is like amount of um, value or money generated per sort of hour of labor of some sort right? yeah yeah so you have your uh, just input labor and capital and out of that you're supposed to get a particular level of output but then you bring in technology you bring in productivity and saying if you can double that output that is due to total factor tfp factor right okay so, so so in this i mean this is at the same time that we have seen great sort of software and uh, other innovation come out exclusively out of the united states and people in the united states who have a university education especially a masters level education are doing fantastically well hmm. right you know and have seen dramatic 
changes in a way that we have not seen come out of Europe or anywhere else um, in the last few decades. Yeah, but that's also kind of points to the fact that there's this growing inequality in the US as well, right? As you said, you've seen some sort of great innovation that's happening. Uh, California is doing amazingly well. It is reaping the rewards of all of that innovation. But you have, let's say, the middle America, right? Uh, Southwest and so on, which is struggling. Uh, you have large number of people who are unemployed. And since the 2008 financial crisis, it so happens that these are the people who suffered the most, even though the, the crisis emerged from Wall Street. You had the middle class American in, in uh, you know, suburban US who actually suffered. They lost their homes, their mortgages, they lost their jobs. Wages have been, those who have held on to their jobs, the wages are, you've seen actually going down and so on. And there was, again, remember that there was about five or six years period of complete stagnation, the secular stagnation that we speak about. So all of that has kind of come to this point where you everyone looked up to the, the, the savior. So in that sense, the economic challenges also got crafted in sort of racial and uh, identity terms as well, right? So you had white Americans from uh, rural parts of America who were sort of seen to be left out of the greater American stories, while relatively many of the migrants, both high-skilled and low-skilled, who were doing successfully, building better lives. And this is a part of that challenge that America has to figure out on its own, right? Yeah. And one of the things that Trump is doing is blaming China for it. In part, yes, he is. In part, he's blaming China for it. In past, he does, he spends a lot of time blaming former presidents for it too. And um, blaming Mexico. For it. And blaming Mexico for it too. Um, but like you said, the fact that people who are immigrating to America, uh, those are people who, are, who tend to be people with high skills. So they are bound to probably do better in new economy jobs as opposed to people who were... You know, running farms, doing over in the sort of coal mines, who are managing steel, those sorts of industries have generally suffered. Um, and that's where steel sort of came in as one of those first things that he hit back at because he was like, I'm going to build, we don't build steel, we need to build steel. China builds half the world's steel and they subsidize it and they make it of poor quality. So that was the argument and therefore sort of China became this focus area. Never mind that the sheer sort of 101 unit economics of making steel in the United States is... Absolutely. Stupid, right? I mean, if if you're talking about a $10 per hour minimum wage or something, you cannot make steel that is competitive with the rest of the world. Uh, the only way to do that would be to hire cheap migrant labor, which again, they don't want to. So they're stuck in this uh, quagmire. So, so, so this is a domestic challenge and uh, conundrum that America is trying to face with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I like what you said that Trump is also blaming past US presidents. Because the past U.S. presidents were trying to do very, very different things when it comes to trade, right? While America was always doing all kinds of uh, countervailing duties, anti-dumping duties, we talked about that with uh, shrimp and Indian exporters and so on. But by and large, they were also trying to sign these larger trade deals, right? So you had NAFTA that had been the North American free trade uh, agreement that's been active for a while. And the Trans-Pacific, uh, yeah, the TPP and the TAP, right? Trans-Pacific and Trans-Atlantic. Where, tell me if I'm wrong, the idea is that too, you have an alliance of countries who broadly agreed on some rules of the game and lower the various tariff-related and non-tariff-related barriers within that region so that they can all benefit in a certain way. Yeah. Right? And uh, this, the, even the TPP and the TAP both excluded China and India 
right? right? Yeah. From these agreements. So, uh, India might be a little better off the fact that TPP and TAPF failed under Trump. But, so when Trump starts doing this, what all cards does he play? And now, how does China respond back? Okay, so we've discussed what Trump has done and what are the sort of cards that he's played so far, uh, getting to this point where he begins this uh, imposition of tariffs and this sort of trade battle. Um, how China sort of initially perceives this? And you need to look at, uh, so we've discussed sort of rot within the American economy and how that sort of leads to some of this. Um, within the Chinese economy, what's starting to happen, and this starts to happen as Xi Jinping takes power, um, in late 2012, 2013, is that uh, you start to see an economic slowdown becoming more structural. Um, and that's, again, because of a couple of things. China's economic boom through the 2000s, early 2000s, the first decade and a half or so, is premised on exports along with massive investment. Um, it's investment-driven growth, and therefore you're seeing all these big cities come up, and therefore you're seeing all these sort of overcapacities in steel, coal, and all these other areas. This was um, also a time when the global economy was growing quite well, right? The early 2000s? Yes. Absolutely. This is um, when China took massive advantage of the most favorable conditions for growth uh, that the globe has seen since uh, early post-war period. Yeah, so and they, uh, and that's also led by sort of heavy government investment. Um, so there is room for private enterprise and private enterprises begin to thrive. Um, but in 2008, you see as the financial crisis hits, there is massive government infusion of funds into the economy. And that sort of keeps the GDP growing. That sort of keeps the engine rolling. Um, oh, so the stimulus didn't just happen in the US or we had some little version that happened in India, but there was a massive one that happened in China as there well. There was an over $500 billion stimulus in China. China uh, was the second highest stimulus yeah. package in the world. Wow. US was first, $1.3 trillion or so, and China was second. And uh, unlike the compunctions in the US where there was this big debate of, oh, are we going towards socialism? The Chinese didn't have any such compunctions. <laughs> they were very, very clear that uh, we need to support the economy. We need to do this. The government plays, the state plays an important role in all of this. So that sort of fuels the growth. But as you come to sort of 2012, 2013, a lot of this investment, which has kept these GDP numbers high and these growth numbers high, starts to add a drain to the economy because you've got massive overcapacities. You're not really, it, the productivity starts to fall. And you've got, like we've seen, ghost towns where you've got cities and cities where nobody's staying. You've got office complexes where there are two companies operating. So that starts to add a drain. And eventually you start to realize that growth is going to start to slow down because there's only so much that you can continue to invest and build. Um, and all this is fueled also by debt? No. Yes, Predominantly so, by debt. Predominantly. So this is when it starts turning. About 2015, right? It when there's red flags or at least very dark yellow flags around the corner. You have, uh, as Manoj mentioned, you have the ghost towns and so on. So the returns on investments are not happening. You did invest. You, you created employment and some kind of push back then. But there has to be return on the investment. Even China needs to follow by some kind of economic rules, right? <laughs> so that's not coming through. So you have massive amounts of debt, both at the kind of um, uh, government level, local government level, and you have debt from the private sector level. Uh, and, and this started really getting out of control at about 2015. The same time when you have a real estate bubble kind of booming, right? So uh, the same thing, you built massively, you invested, so real estate prices went up, but then you don't have demand that is matching up with all of the supply. So eventually there will be 
a bubble and that bubble is i mean they managed for it to not burst completely but that was there and it also required enough number of amount of kind of investment again by the chinese government to diffuse the bubble itself right third aspect of it is a stock market bubble yep. all of these things happened together and and we know when trading was stopped in 2015 i remember on on a particular day the whatever black something for uh, china uh, they had to literally stop trading for a few hours uh, in the chinese stock market because price was just nose diving yeah they didn't just stop trading they also uh, got together a consortium of leading yeah. sort of regulators companies to try and say we're going to buy back things we're going to keep this afloat um, and there was this serious panic that was brewing um, and that's all sort of and sort of one of the most interesting ways of how the chinese have managed all of this is obviously very heavy state intervention state direction they sort of in 2015 they went after a lot of companies and a lot of people saying speculation skilling the market the fundamentals are strong um but what you ended up seeing was that the state spin the narrative um towards it phrase which has become fairly popular in china which is uh, this is the new normal um you know we need to be happy about these low growth numbers now which are in the sort of 6% 6.5% because it shows that we've reached a certain level of development and it's normal now for this to go have to happen like this and that becomes this sort of buzzword which gets spun but it sort of masks some deep sort of problems within the economy um and therefore you see because sort of the comparative advantage is starting to fade labor costs have gone up companies want to shift high low end manufacturing is moving out how do you sustain this you need to look at creating new levels of growth and that's where you have innovation technology and all those sorts of things so it's around the same time 2015 2016 is where you start seeing more government plans talking about new drivers of growth um you have the made in china 2025 plan coming out in 2015 which becomes this bone of contention with trump eventually um but that's sort of a brief on what's happening within the chinese economy at the same time you have china not just kind of looking for new levers of growth outside that is what can it now export at the high end technology level not just low end cheap manufacturing products but it's also looking to rebalance its entire economy right from before what it basically used to do is keep wages artificially low um then almost confiscate the savings of the citizens so that it has higher government spending and that it can channelize into whatever these kind of export driven uh, things now it's actually looking at rebalancing it how do you make sure that real wages of rural china even goes up such that now they become the consumers of the next level of uh, manufacturing in china how do how do you ensure that chinese start consuming more chinese products right so that that rebalancing is happening at the same time or they're trying to do that rebalancing at the same time yeah that's one of the components of that new normal that we need to move from investment driven growth so from export driven growth to investment driven growth to now we need to move to a stage of consumption driven growth um that's sort of your direction of the new normal so this is happening in china domestically right and this has been brewing over so you said i mean xi jinping takes over sort of in the middle of the obama era in the united states uh, around the same time we are dealing in india with our own uh, post financial crisis problems low growth the new government takes over here as well oil prices come down so there's some benefit now oil prices are also slowly climbing up but in all this context how does china react to what trump does with tariffs i think what they initially thought was um 
that this was domestic politics in America and there isn't any seriousness within. So they probably presumed what most analysts sitting outside America or analyzing America presumed, which was that a lot of this is campaign rhetoric. And eventually, sort of the wheels of the bureaucracy, once they start to get into motion with the new administration, they will temper down all of this and fundamentally nothing's going to happen. Yes, there have been some campaign promises that have been made and there must be something to show for them. So there will be some sort of transactional give and take that Trump would require. But generally that he could be managed and this won't sort of snowball into something serious. Um, that's by and large what the perception was. And one of the sort of reasons that sort of supported this perception was that Trump had said that the moment I get into office, on the first day I get into office, I am going to label China a currency manipulator. He still hasn't done that. In fact, the Treasury Department has actually repeatedly put out reports saying it's not really manipulating its currency. It's not really as bad as it is. And there's a half-yearly review that happens. And the last one came out in October. And it didn't label China currency manipulated. It didn't even raise... By the way, reports. that label, does that have legal uh, implications? It has implications within the United States and how the United States would end up dealing with it. So in that context, it does. Um, but the fact that he didn't go about doing this the fact that initially uh, the sort of broad architecture of the strategic and economic dialogue between China and the United States survived one meeting, which was at Mar-a-Lago when Xi Jinping visited. Um, but beyond that, um, and this is a failure of Chinese reading of what was happening in the US, that they were unable to anticipate this sort of deep structural angst with regard to what's happening on trade and how China had sort of come to symbolize that angst. Um, and I think that's where they've sort of failed because they ended up perceiving it as something that would that could be dealt to, away with with certain sort of transactional bargains, um, this whole thing of Trump being a transactional president. Um, and I think that's where sort of they failed in their response. Um, and that even after Trump imposed the first round of tariffs on 50 billion worth of goods. Were they caught unaware at that point of time? Actually, I don't think they were caught unaware that he ended up doing that. Uh, there was a sense that he probably will not. Um, but then the 50 billion was not a matter of deep concern. Once he did it, the Chinese stuck to their line, which was that we will respond in reciprocal manners as opposed to escalating. And therefore, they responded with the same 10% on 50 billion. What really sort of... What, what kind of 50 billion was that? I mean, what does China import from the United States? A lot of agricultural products. A lot of agricultural products. A lot so of mean, pork as well. Pork, meat. And some of this targeted these products. But they were, again, it was selective. It was limited. Um, it changes later in the year as Trump escalates to tariffs on 200 billion worth of imports from China. Um, and that's when the Chinese sort of respond with eventually tag, applying tariffs on all of American exports to China because there's only so much of it. They don't have that amount to... Um, what but, kind of amounts are we talking about? I think it's about a total of about 150 billion odd uh, in that sort of ballpark range. Um, and they can't go higher. So they can't really reciprocate anymore because there's <laughs> nothing left to reciprocate. Um, but I think that's the sort of area where they get caught off guard. Uh, and sort of leading up to even that is when they get caught off guard because... In the interim, in those few months before these two rounds of tariffs get hit, um, you have this action by the U.S. Department of Commerce against uh, ZTE, which is the Chinese telecommunications giant. And that is where it sort of really starts to set in that 
this is going to be problematic and we have miscalculated manoj i like how you said that you know 50 billion dollars or 150 billion dollars is not a very big number and that also reflects how much the chinese economy has grown right because when we are talking about 50 billion dollars of exports is a very big number for india mm. and if uh, 10% tariff is put on that that's that has a gigantic impact on no absolutely absolutely i'm uh, i mean the chinese economy today uh, sort of at gdp levels at 13 trillion around uh, it sort of is produces about its share of the world global output is about 15 16% the uh, us share is about 24% if i'm correct 24 25% um, and it's steadily increasing whereas the us share is steadily declining so it's 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 a behemoth it's a behemoth which is dominating uh, global trade and yeah and like i said i i don't think that the idea of 50 billion they saw 50 billion as a small amount in that sense that it's a small amount but what they saw it was in the largest scheme of things this is a small escalation this is trump essentially just saying that look i'm serious and even at that point of time some of the thinking within china when if you read media if you look at what the officials were saying what came across was that they were sanguine about it and they thought that well this is going to pass yeah. even uh, this actually, is a hit that we can take this is yeah. a hit that we can it take. was actually quite a subdued response from china if this similar kind of this thing had been put europe actually i think reacted in a much more aggressive manner than china did even though the damage to europe was much smaller than what it was to china and partly because as you've been saying china has also diversified its trade it's not dependent solely on the us uh, as its uh, yeah. forex owner right it it pretty much exports to every other country in the world uh, it's got that kind of diversification so that's that's still this thing um, just one aspect of it so they said okay we'll retaliate but not really make too big a deal about it because they're looking at much you know i think china has the real big picture in mind and they don't want to you know tick off america by going into an all out war i i think the one thing that i'd sort of add to that is that yes uh, and this business of diversifying your trade it's been a conscious policy yeah. so as part of sort of belt and road um, one of the attempts has been that you expand trade with bri countries and whether that is in resources and finished products from china and resources coming from other countries but there has been this concerted attempt for more reasons than one more reasons than just economic there's also a political reasoning for sort of expanding your trade with these countries um but that has been a concerted attempt in fact the numbers that you see that from the sort of national bureau of statistics from china that keep coming out regularly what they'll keep telling you is um there's a separate component always it's shared about what's our trade with bri countries like and how that's expanding year on year the, the attempt is to sort of show that this is a concerted effort that we are making um as part of our responsibility as we grow ahead as we become bigger um and that's the, the sort of other flip side of that is that it gives you some leverage when it comes to a competition with america so in this trump escalated china underestimated they didn't retaliate but they at least reciprocated did this battle has it uh, is it over is it ongoing what's the current state of affairs i think the current state of affairs is that uh, in early in the first week of december you had a meeting between trump and xi jinping on the sidelines of the g20 summit in argentina um, at the end of the meeting uh, you had a uh, you had two statements put out one by each side uh, the statements had significant differences now whether you see that as differences in terms of the audience that you're talking to 
um, whether each side is talking to their domestic audiences or do you want to see that as a genuine difference in perception of what came out of that meeting um, is up to your perspective. I probably would see it as a bit of both um, because there's enough room for uh, uh, leeway in that state, in those statements. But at the end of the day, what that statement, one thing that both sides agree upon is that there is a 90-day ceasefire starting from December 1st. Um, in that 90-day ceasefire, there are going to be, the American side says that the, Chi that the Chinese are going to make certain fundamental uh, adjustments, let me put it that way, rather than concessions, fundamental adjustments to their broad economic policy, which will address America's, a range of American concerns. In return, the US is not going to raise tariffs. So the deal was that by, this, by January 1st, 2019, if there was no deal in December, um, by January 1st, 2019, Donald Trump had promised to raise the 10% tariff that he'd put uh, on 250 billion worth of imports. He planned to raise that percentage to 25% and also potentially consider placing tariffs on all Chinese imports. So there's still a couple of hundred odd billion that are pending and sort of put tariffs on all of those also. And within that framework is where this deal happened. The only other sort of point in this negotiation getting to Argentina is that um, in May, June, the Chinese had had a sense there had been conversations between the Vice Premier Luha and Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. And there was a sense that this is going to get settled. There is an understanding that we've arrived at. The Chinese kept calling it that we've come to a consensus, we've come to a consensus. And therefore, they didn't react too badly after the first round of tariffs. But when the ZTE business happened, that's when there was this sense of being burnt by dealing with Trump. Um, there was a sense that, oh, we can't really trust you guys anymore. We have we had a deal. Yes, we understand domestic compulsions, but we had this consensus that we talked about. And, you know, you've left us burnt. Now we don't know whether we can trust what the administration is doing because the U.S. administration is so divided. There are different groups within the Trump White House who want to do different things. Um, there are hawks, there are doves, there are people who want to talk, there are people who want to fundamentally decouple with China. And then there are people who want to just sort of turn the screws and then get a certain concession in place. Um, so there are different ways in which the White House is operating. And I think the Chinese ambassador to the US is on record saying this to American media houses that, you know, perhaps you can tell us what exactly is happening within the White House because it's there are so many different views and it's extremely difficult to figure out what's happening within the White House and whom do we trust and whom do we talk to. So getting to Argentina was complicated. Once they got to Argentina, um, this is what's been agreed upon. The idea is that come next year, um, there's going to be delegation level visits. Um, we still don't know who's going to go. Um, initially, it was said that Liu He would be traveling uh, to D.C. Um, the Chinese then came out with a statement saying, we're happy to welcome an American delegation here. So we aren't exactly sure who's going to take that step of traveling and how these talks are going to shape up. Um, but what we do know is that um, there is a list that the Americans have given the Chinese. That list comprised eight broad points that the Americans wanted addressed. The Chinese ended up breaking it down to about 120, 140 points. Um, and Wait, from eight points? Yes, they ended up breaking it down in terms of breaking it down into smaller components and elaborating it into sort of 140 big points, 120, 140 big points. Uh, and they said that some of these, about 40% of these, we can address immediately. 
40% of these we will take some time to address, but we will address them. Um, and the remaining, we're sorry, we're not going to be able to address them. Those are fundamental to us and we can't change that. So there is a certain bargain that's uh, taking place. Um, we'll have to wait and see whether the ceasefire is an actual ceasefire leading to some sort of a resolution or whether this is just a holiday season break for both sides to celebrate the new year on December 31st and then spring festival. So the break, so the ceasefire is in effect till something around Feb 28th, right? So yes. March 1st is when either we might have a um, Treaty of Washington, D.C. or the Treaty of Beijing to call a truce on this battle. Uh, but we have to see what happens then. Well, whatever agreement, if there is an agreement that is signed in with regard to this trade battle, if there is an immediate cessation of tariff hostilities, there's a deeper conflict that doesn't go anywhere. There's a deeper conflict that will sustain. And the deeper conflict is about this structural competition and rivalry with regard to levers of innovation, new technology, sort of the new engines of growth. And that's where the real sort of war, if you want to use that term, lies as opposed to this trade battle. Okay, so... On the very next episode of the Pragati podcast, we will be talking about this, let's say, the long war for technology. I would rather call it the long march for technology dominance. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Chinese uh, phrase. And um, maybe in the in the century after China did its long march, there's a new long march emerging. So let's talk more about what this long war on technology is and what free trade with Chinese characteristics and development with Chinese characteristics can really be. Uh, thank you so much, Manoj. Thank you, Anupam. We'll have you both back on the very next episode of the Pravati Podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for staying with us till the end. Check out episode 78, the second episode in our two-episode special on the US-China War for Technology to see what's afoot beneath this ongoing tariff battle. It's also out at the same time. Manoj and Anupam join us again there. Have any questions or comments? Write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. Do you listen to the show on iTunes? Then please leave us a rating and a review. It would mean a lot to us. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IVM Podcast app on thinkpragati.com or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We are there everywhere. How many times have you motivated yourself to improve your sleep or lose weight or be more productive? How many times have you failed? Hi, my name is Ashtin Doctor. Tune into my show, The Habit Coach Podcast, where we focus on creating small, tiny habits to improve your life instead of those big, impossible tasks. So make listening to me a habit every Monday, Wednesday and Friday on the IVM Podcast app or ivmpodcast.com or on your favorite podcasting app. Yeah. It's IVM here. Let's go. With IVM kids on the block over here. Just the talk, taking a break from producing all day. Coming on this podcast because we got stuff to say. IVM Daily is the name of the show. Monday to Friday, we ready to go. Talking about stuff 
in our head We might even talk about our favorite bread Signing out, it's IBM here The podcast network that's in your ear Catch IBM Daily Monday to Friday On the IBM Podcast app Or wherever you get your podcasts <laughs>